Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 42. My name is Rick. I'm author of uh, more books than I can sometimes even remember. Isn't that a crazy thing? (laughs) I'm so, it's one of the more grateful aspects of my entire life that I have somehow, someway continued to be able to write the whole length of my life, Um, even though that prospect has seemed quite improbable at times. But I'm I'm author of the just-released Jesus-Centered Daily, Daily Devotional. If you don't have a copy of that yet, you can always check it out. Just go to my website, jesuscenteredaily.com. That's jesuscenteredaily.com. And there you can get a free 10-day sampler of it if you want to check it out first. And you can watch a little intro video where I describe the the devotion and, and really all of the pieces that come into it and the things that make this particular way of walking alongside Jesus in a daily way a different experience than maybe you've seen elsewhere. So you can watch that video, or of course, you can uh, click a button and order it. And it, by the way, it is a great little Christmas gift. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I have uh, little devotion books that I've been reading for about 30 years now. Uh, A lot of you may have a favorite devotional that you read and you always go back to. So this could be one of those things for somebody that you get it for. So I just encourage you to head over to jesuscenteredaily.com and and check it out, or you can just go directly to Amazon if if you prefer. So, and, and if you already have a copy, please, please, please post your review on Amazon. Be amazed how much that helps. When you post your review, it's very easy to do. It takes just a couple of minutes. You don't have to write a long review. Just a few sentences would be fantastic. That would be great. Um, and as I always say, if your friends don't have one, uh, threaten them into buying one. Um, that's always my strategy. So this, gang, is the eighth episode in a series I'm calling Present Concerns. And what we're doing is exploring issues and challenges and uh, difficulties uh, that we're experiencing right now in our culture and trying to build bridges between those experiences and similar ones that Jesus dealt with when he was in relationship with people walking the earth. How did Jesus handle issues like this? What can we learn from him? What can we grow from if we slow down and pay attention to him? So today we're going to explore the present concern of exhaustion. Hmm. Just when I say that word, I, I can hear the sighs emanating all over the land. Exhaustion. Oh my gosh, yes. It's yeah, I think it's it's the it's the one of the most common words I hear today when I talk to people about how they're doing. I'm exhausted. They're tired and drained from Zoom meetings and just the online life in general. They're tired of the isolation that they have felt uh, under these pandemic restrictions. They're tired of the strain the election brought on their life and even now continues to bring. Uh, They're just tired of worrying, tired of worrying about uh, the divisions in our culture, uh, tired of worrying about where are we headed as a culture, tired of worrying about the economy, tired of worrying about our jobs and uh, our prospects in the future. We're, we're, we're just tired of worrying, period. <laughs> we're tired of the new normal that we're living in. And a lot of us are exhausted from trying to layer on new expectations into an already stressful life. Um, our fuel tank is low or empty. <clears throat> we're, we're emotionally tired from the, what you might call the stress cauldron that has become many homes now because Unlike normal life, uh, we're stuck with each other now inside the four walls of our home. And, you know, that uh, I think this is a, a true enough to be a blanket statement. That doesn't always go well, uh, and it can drain you as well. So I always remember this line 
from an old episode of the of the uh, classic sitcom MASH. It's hard actually to call it a sitcom because it was half drama, half comedy. Um, but MASH was uh, on TV for a long time, won many Emmy Awards, and it was based on a movie of the same name. It's, it's basically the story of a mobile army surgical hospital. That's what MASH stands for. And all of the characters during the Korean War that were serving at this bivouacked hospital uh, near the front lines. It's where uh, a lot of field surgery took place. And the cast of characters, like on most sitcoms, were uh, distinct and unique and bizarre, <laughs> a lot of them. But the lead character on the show, the kind of the person that was the hub of everything, is a character named Hawkeye, played by Alan Alda. And um, I, when I was a, a young person watching this show, I remember some episodes from the show that somehow made a sort of a permanent impact on me. And there was a scene in one of those episodes that, uh, and a line that Hawkeye, played by Alan Alda, uttered in this scene that has always stuck with me for some reason. Maybe it's because I had never heard anyone before talk about the relationship between exhaustion and courage. Uh, but it always stuck with me and it, and it popped up in my head as I was preparing this podcast. And so let me just set the scene for you. We're just going to listen to like a 30 second clip from this scene. And it's, I, I'm amazed I could even find this online, uh, but I did. I, I found this little scene online. So I'm going to play it for you just to set the scene in this episode. It's about a, a sniper who is shooting at um, the MASH unit from the neighboring hillside. And they're hunkered down trying to avoid getting shot. And they don't know what to do because they're, they're not really soldiers, they're doctors. And they don't know how to neutralize this threat of this sniper who just continues to shoot from the bushes. And so it's very tense. And the entire camp is already exhausted <clears throat> and stressed from what they have to do as a normal part of their life. And now they have on top of that, trying to save people's lives and operate on them while there's a sniper shooting into their tents. And so by, by the time this has been going on for more than a day, the entire camp is just exhausted. It's exhaustion on top of exhaustion. So one night Hawkeye ventures out uh, under cover of darkness so that he can't be targeted. And um, uh, his nemesis in the camp, a guy named Frank, um, is also out there and they're having a conversation outside when suddenly they hear some noise inside the mess tent where nobody is supposed to be. And Hawkeye thinks that must be the sniper. He must be hungry and he must have broken into the mess tent to see what he could scrounge. And he tells Frank they should go and get the jump on that sniper and catch him to end this kind of, um, you know, th this kind of purgatory they've been sentenced to. <clears throat> and, uh, and so he suggests to Frank that they, they sneak into the mess tent and they catch the sniper. But Frank balks at that plan. <laughs> He's essentially a coward. And Hawkeye says, well, I'm going to go do it anyway. And he explains really what a hero is. So let's listen to this scene from MASH. This episode is called The Sniper. So let's listen to this little 30-second scene from MASH. And you'll hear uh, Hawkeye talking to Frank about what they're going to do here. Here we go. That was, I know, hard to kind of hard to hear. The qual audio quality isn't great there, but what uh, Hawkeye says to Frank <clears throat> in the end when he's explaining what a hero is, he's saying that a hero is someone who's tired enough and cold enough and had it enough that <clears throat> he, he just doesn't give a damn anymore. <laughs> and they and they go and do something courageous to make sure that the whole thing stops. And so Hawkeye risks his life to go in and explore this, uh, this sound in the mess tent uh, using great courage. And he's already decided 
that if he gets caught or even shot, um, it's worth it at this point because he's just too exhausted to keep going with the status quo. And it, I, I guess it always struck me as a young man that I'd never heard anyone describe heroism that way. And something about it rang true to me, even though even now when I listen to it, I think, is that really true? That heroes are often people who just have reached a point of exhaustion where they just don't care anymore and they're just going to do something. So I think it's also true that exhaustion can make us cowards. Um, actually, the more tired you are often, the less um, courageous you can be. And on the other side of that coin, I think what, what Hawkeye was saying in this scene is actually true, that exhaustion can sometimes lead us to the courage we need most when we finally decide, um, I can't take this anymore. I'm finally going to do something that I was averse to doing before, but I'm going to do it now because I've just had enough. Sometimes courage looks like that and exhaustion leads to that kind of expression. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to explore sort of the road less traveled today. Let's walk with Jesus on the road to courage in the midst of our exhaustion instead of cowardice. Uh, both are viable options. There's two forks in the road. Let's take the road less traveled and see where Jesus leads us when we, when we walk the road of exhaustion into courage. So um, the COVID uh, pandemic and the, and the resulting restrictions have had enormous impact on all of us. And um, it has led to sort of what I would say universal exhaustion because of all that has happened to us. I can't believe it's only been a year. <laughs> and then we've only been dealing this with this for, for eight or nine months now. It seems like forever. It, it's hard to even remember what life was like before all of this happened. And all of the blows and griefs and laments and disappointments and shattered dreams and worries and anxieties that we talked about before, all of them emanating from this worldwide threat has just created, just emptied our fuel tank in, in so many ways. And <clears throat> yesterday I was thinking about all this that had happened in my family also. And I just remembered a scene from a film that reminded me of maybe that road less traveled, that Jesus path forward through exhaustion and fear. So I, I thought it would be fascinating to listen to this. You, you're going to recognize what's happening in this scene right away. I think you can play this scene out in your head because I am pretty sure you've seen this, this, this scene before. It's from the movie, The Sound of Music. <laughs> and it's early on in the story of a young novitiate um, who is hoping to become a nun and she's just not sure she's restless. And so her, um, her superiors at the, uh, um, her, her superiors basically have told her, we think you need a little break. We're gonna, how about if you go be a, a governess to a large number of children that have been orphaned after their mother died and now their father who is a military officer and runs his household like a strict, uh, he, he's, a, he's a strict sea captain with his own kids. Um, she goes to be the governor's there at this mansion with all of these kids who live in fear of their father and don't have a mother anymore. And one night early on um, when, when Maria is there as governess of these ch children, there's a big thunderstorm that comes up and she's in bed in her bedroom. And all of a sudden the, the kids start showing up at her door because the thunderstorm is scaring her. And eventually all of the kids show up in her room because they're all scared. But under, underlying the fear of the thunderstorm, you think about this, they've been through a lot of trauma already. They lost their mother, their father is sort of emotionally disengaged and very stern. Uh, there's a lot of unrest at this time in Austria where the, where the film is set. Uh, they're on the verge of Germany invading Austria 
and taking over, taking it over. There's lots of cultural tensions, just like we're experiencing today. Lots of division, lots of suspicions of one another. Um, think everything is up in the air. They don't know what's going to happen going forward. And the father's under tremendous pressure, even though the kids don't know it. And into this mix comes a new person. And at first they try to make her life hard. But during this thunderstorm, their exhaustion and their fears and their uh, just this place of vulnerability that they've been thrust into, it all comes out because the storm triggers it. And Maria decides to handle their exhaustion and fear in an interesting way. So I think, I think you'll remember this scene and you're free actually to sing along too, if you'd like to. Here we go. When anything bugs me and I'm feeling unhappy, I just try and think of nice things. What kind of things? Oh, well, let me see, nice things. Daffodils, green meadows, skies full of stars, raindrops on roses, and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so bad. Does your brother work? Of course he does. You try it. What things do you like? Put you a lot. Bunny rabbit. No school. Whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Oh, together. Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver white winters that melt into spring. These are a few of my favorite things. All right, there you have it. A few of my favorite things. And where I cut the scene off is, of course, where Captain Von Trapp enters the room sternly and wants to know what's going on and whistles all of his children back to bed. <laughs> but what's fascinating about this is that if you think about this scene, uh, it, I know it feels funny to exegete or go deeper with a scene from The Sound of Music, but I think it's important here that the kids show up exhausted and afraid and the, and the thunderstorm is kind of the tipping point for them. And they're looking for something that will take the fuel rod out of their exhaustion and their fears. And instead of directly confronting those things or, or giving them platitudes or inspiration, Maria just starts singing about some of her favorite things and how those favorite things somehow create space for us in the midst of our exhaustion and fear. They give us almost like an eye of the hurricane, a, a safe place to rest from those things. And, it, and the more things she lists, the more the kids come out of their place of exhaustion and deadness and fear, and they come alive the more she paints a picture of these favorite things and then invites them to think about their own favorite things. It's a sideways way 
of dealing with fear and exhaustion by listing off for them uh, the, the things that capture their heart for whatever reason. You ever thought about what your favorite things are? Uh, maybe right now, think of one or two things that are that you'd put on your list of favorite things. Like one of mine right now and has been for a while is Saturday night. <laughs> After a long work week uh, on Saturday is our cleaning day. So my wife and I and my kids, we uh, clean our whole house. Sometimes that also involves a lot of outside work as well. And um, after a long week, uh, a whole day of cleaning inside and out can be really exhausting, but also satisfying. And at the end of that time, I have uh, established a tradition where I, I always make our Saturday night meal. And it always involves steak, fish for my wife, and sometimes chicken for my daughters but it always involves steak um, no matter what and that's that saturday night is steak night for me and so i make the whole dinner i turn the jazz music up loud and i ask everyone if i can just do this alone and i listen to loud jazz and i make dinner and then when we're finally sitting down and enjoying this meal it feels like i can exhale from the week and we eat dinner together and usually we watch a, a film at night together. So that whole progression from hard work and the satisfaction you feel of accomplishing something to then the reward of a really good meal and your favorite people around you and then watching a film that night, that whole thing, that's one of my favorite things. Um, and the question then that I, that I started to ask myself is, well, why does remembering the things that we think of as favorite things, why does that help to address our fear and exhaustion. What, how does it do that? So um, I, I, we have a painting in our, in our family room that we got many years ago. It's, a, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a stylized print of a sort of a rural scene. It has some very colorful rolling hills and trees with a, a couple of white, looks like a kind of simple farm buildings sort of nestled in this valley in, in between all these beautiful rolling hills and trees. And it's all stylized. So it's not, it, it doesn't look like a, like a, a photo, for instance. It's an, a stylized uh, painting. And so it has lots of incredible colors in it. Um, and the way that this painting ended up over our fireplace in our family room, is that I in the I think it was in a mall in a mall store. We were when we were walking through the mall one day. I saw this in the front window of a store, and I had to stop and stare at it. It just drew me somehow. And then every time I was in that mall, I was drawn again to that same painting. I would go and stare at it, and there was something about it that was drawing me to it. And so finally, we pulled the trigger and bought our own version of it and uh, mounted it above our fireplace. So the other night I was just sitting uh, in, in our love seat in our family room and my wife and my daughters were doing something else and it was just one of those quiet, calm moments and I, and I was staring across the room at that painting and I just started studying it and I thought, you know, I love that painting. I wonder why I love it so much. So I just stopped to ponder it and, and ask myself, what was drawing this to me? But I also was, was asking Jesus at the same time, Jesus, why, what is it about this painting that really draws me to it? What is it that taps into something? And, I, and the more I looked at the painting, the more I realized um, there were some profound connections in this painting to my own uh, path and intimacy with Jesus. In the painting, there's a, in the foreground, there's a road that is curling down into the valley toward these two white structures. And there's something about this path. It, the, if you look at the painting, the, from the perspective of looking at it, you are on the path. It emerges out of the foreground and goes into the scene and heads down into this uh, beautiful little valley where there are two places 
that you could go to visit. And, and there's something about the invitation of that path toward this beautiful place in front of me that uh, somehow um, gives me an echo of my own relationship with Jesus. But this time when I was looking at the painting, I realized something I'd never realized before. At the very part of the foreground, like on the bottom part of the painting, it's all shrouded in shadow. I never noticed that there was like this band of darkness at the very bottom of the painting and that the road comes out of that band of darkness. I realized that this metaphoric truth of light emerging from the darkness, lighting a path forward, really captures the essence of what it is to be in relationship with Jesus that he draws me out of the darkness into the light onto a path where he's going somewhere. And he's inviting me to go that somewhere with him at the end, just before the crucifixion, when Jesus is praying in John 17 to his father, the theme that he comes back to over and over again is I want these who I love to be with me where I am. I want to be in them and I want them in me. That is my highest goal. I want them with me. And I think this painting reminds me of that deeper truth, the deeper invitation that Jesus has offered to me to bring me out of the darkness into the light and invite me to be with him where he is. To walk through the door of that white farmhouse and sit with him. Um, or to do what, what Mary did when Jesus visited Mary and Martha. Just sit at his feet and talk take the time to enjoy each other. Well, this painting reminds me that I was made to enjoy Jesus and be enjoyed by him. And that the path that he's leading me on is full of light and beauty and color and kindness and safety. It's where my exhaustion can find rest on this path. If I will take the path out of darkness into light, my exhaustion has an end to it. I can see the place where I'm going to enter and take off my shoes and sigh and breathe again um, and just stay in the presence of, of Jesus to enjoy being with him. So that I realized that this, I was drawn to this painting, not just because it's pretty and I like the colors, but really because it reflects the passions and the kingdom of God truths that, that, that I long for, that I'm passionate about. It draws me because the spirit of Jesus in me is drawing me to it. And I think all of our favorite things have something in their mix that draws us back to the kingdom of God. If we just stop and pay attention and ask ourselves, why do I like that thing? Did you just do what I did with this painting? I, I stopped, I paused, and I, I thought for the first time, I wonder what it is about this painting that makes it one of my favorite things. What is it that draws me to it? Jesus, would you help me to see what that is? And he did. He unveiled it for me. So when we consider the invitation of our favorite things, we are walking a path into the heart of Jesus if we're patient enough to walk it. So when we're exhausted and vulnerable and afraid, what we really need is an invitation back into a place of safety. That's what our favorite things represent. An invitation back into a place of safety where we can let our exhaustion out and finally stop striving. We can rest. That's what we need, a place of rest. And you can't rest unless you're safe. And you can't be safe if your means of safety are temporary or not strong enough to keep you safe. So these favorite things are just little invitations back into our safe, safe places. So I thought it'd be good to explore just a couple of stories that represent an invitation to safety with Jesus. So let's, let's explore these stories and then I'll talk about them uh, afterward. And what we're thinking about here is you, you can think about this as I'm reading each of these stories is, well, how does Jesus enter into the exhaustion of the people in the story? How, what does Jesus do with their exhaustion? How does he enter into it? 
that's the question to think about as I focus on these two stories. The first one's from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. If you have, if you're not driving and you have your Jesus-centered Bible there next to you, you might want to flip open to Luke 13, 1 through 8. The Jesus-centered Bible, by the way, is is uh, the New Living Translation, which I, I love this translation because it's both deep and simple at the same time. It's really, sometimes people think the New Living Translation is is like the the Living Bible uh, paraphrase from many years ago, but it's not. It's an actual translation. And um, more and more um, college professors in seminaries and Bible colleges are using the, the, the uh, New Living Translation, by the way, because it is both deep and simple. So if you, know, if you don't have a Jesus-centered Bible already, oh, please pick one up. You Perfect Christmas gift for yourself or someone else. Um, Again, just like the Jesus Center Daily Devotion, it's a it's a lifelong gift, and it has features in it that are unlike any Bible that's out there. Special features that uh, I and my team created to draw us to Jesus, no matter where we are in the Bible. And these are features that that aren't in any other Bible. So, I'll put a link, uh, as always, to the Jesus Center Bible on our podcast page. Tell you more about that at the end. But this is if if you're not driving, you want to crack open your Bible. Uh, we're in Luke 13, verses 1 through 8. There's no title above this section, but I created one for it. I call it, Jesus Puts the News in Perspective. So let's read this, starting in verse 1, Luke 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but not, did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now that this is kind of a disturbing little parable <laughs> connected to the anxiety and exhaustion that Jesus is trying to address in the people around him. And the reason I say that is um, uh, slow down for a second and think about what Jesus is trying to address here, that there are some Galilean Jews who had been murdered by Pilate. And then as a, uh, an ultimate disrespect and uh, an act intended to create great fear and to rob them of their courage, he takes some of the blood of the people he's murdered and he mixes it with their sacrificial blood as part of their religious ceremony. And then as part of uh, what Pilate does here is he, he, he takes the, 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 the blood of these murdered Galileans and he mixes it into the, sacrifice, the, the sacrificial blood that these Galileans are using for their religious ceremony. It's the ultimate sort of disrespect. And it, it's a way of, of trying to make sure that any shred of courage they might've had is gone. That, and just think of the weariness of living under this kind of system, the constant state of fear that you're in, of when's the other shoe gonna drop? So this news that this happened to these Galileans must have just stolen any hope they had left. And they're just tired of living under the brutal uh, Roman regime. And uh, they're tired of walking their paths to and from their workplaces and their homes and seeing crucified people along the way. They're tired of this. They're exhausted from the worry and anxiety of what life has brought them under Roman rule. And Jesus asked the question, do you think these Galileans were worse than others? Uh, do you think they, they suffered because they were being punished? And 
he says, no, no, of course not. That's not the right story. But then he says this, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he tells another news story about 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. And he asked the same question. Are they more guilty than everybody else living in Jerusalem? Did they get punished for their terrible sin? And he says again, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So let's slow down here for a second because this repent and perish language seems really harsh to us. But what, what is Jesus really saying when, he's, when he says, unless you repent? He's really saying, unless you stop walking away from me, unless you stop um, rejecting me and rejecting the invitation of relationship that God has given you in me, then your hope really will die. The hope that is under duress right now, the exhaustion that you feel right now will be permanent unless you repent, because I'm inviting you into close, intimate relationship. And when you attach yourself to me, my life will enter into your life. Light and life will enter into you. Abundant life, Jesus calls it. High-octane life is another way you could, you could phrase it. But you first need to stop walking away from me and stop, start walking toward me. You need to stop rejecting um, the relationship that I'm offering and start accepting the intimate relationship I'm offering. Um, and that's why he then tells this parable of a fig tree that's growing in a vineyard, but it never, it never produces any fruit. There's no life in the fig tree. The life is not producing fruit. And a, and a growing thing that's meant to produce fruit will. This one doesn't. It has no life in it. And the man says, I've been looking for fruit for a long time, but I haven't found any because this fig tree is disconnected from its source of life. We should just cut it down. It's no use anymore. But the, the caretaker of the vineyard steps in um, and he says, don't cut it down yet. Leave it alone. Have some patience. I want to invite the fig tree again to bear fruit. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to try to connect it to its source of life so that it will bear fruit. But if it still rejects that invitation, that source of life, if it still won't work, then of course we'll have to cut it down. So here Jesus is, is, is uh, giving them a little story that comes at what he's trying to get at in a different way, in a sideways way. He's trying to say, that if you remain disconnected from me, from your source of life, of, of course you won't have fruit in your life. And you're, you're slowly dying inside, separated from the source of life. So stop walking away. Whatever you're doing to walk away from me, stop. Turn around, start walking toward me again. I'm offering you relationship. And once you attach yourself to me, the life that produces fruit will come through you. And you will see your life come to life again. So speaking into their exhaustion and their fear, what Jesus says is, I've not come here to solve the Roman problem. I've come here to solve your attachment problem. If you will attach yourself to me, you will find the life that you're looking for. And this sounds funny, but just as in that scene, when Julie Andrews or Maria <laughs> sings about their, their, her favorite things and offers out the invitation to walk the path of those favorite things back into intimacy with Jesus, back into a safe place. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's inviting these people weary of the news. <laughs> Ring a bell? He's inviting people weary of the news to take their exhaustion to him, to give up the straining that we have in our life of trying to make everything work ourselves and give into that exhaustion and turn to him to, to find the life we crave and can't find on our own. Let's look at one more story. This is from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 35. And this is part of a longer story in John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, this portion of the story is when Jesus arrives at the scene where um, 
Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. We're gonna, that's the part we're going to read, John 11, 17 through 35. But just as a quick precursor, um, Lazarus is sick. Word comes to Jesus that he's sick. Please come soon. Um, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, uh, brother, brother and sisters, live in Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem. So it's not very far to go. But inexplicably, Jesus doesn't come. And uh, he tells his disciples he's not going for several days. And essentially what he's doing is trying to make sure Lazarus is dead by the time he gets there. Um, it's a high stakes thing he's doing here. Tremendous risk because he's allowing one of his closest friends to die when he could save him. And he's allowing two other of his closest friends, Mary and Martha, to wonder why he's not come yet. Even though it's only a short distance from Jerusalem, he could get there in, in about a half an hour if he wanted to, but he, he doesn't come. And meanwhile, Lazarus dies and they're racked with grief and all of Lazarus's friends and Mary and Martha's friends come to grieve with them. And then once this is certain, Jesus decides to go ahead and travel to Bethany. So um, again, the, the, the question I want you to be thinking about here as I read this is how does Jesus enter into Mary and Martha's exhaustion in this story? So let's read from John 11, 17 through 35. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary, Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, but I, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. All right, here we have Mary and Martha who are just exhausted from grief. Their, their brother had been sick for a, a long time. They were trying to take care of him. They were trying to stave off the very thing that happened. They asked, they asked Jesus to come and help. They'd already seen him perform many miracles. They knew what he was capable of, but inexplicably he wouldn't come. This is a tremendous threat to their relationship. So not only are they dealing with the exhaustion and fear around what's happening to their beloved brother, but now they have no explanation for why their close friend Jesus would not come and help when they asked. No explanation. And now this double grief, this double drain of strength and courage um, comes to them. And it's interesting when when Jesus meets Martha, and Martha immediately says, it describes the elephant in the living room, really, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She says the blunt truth. And then she says, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. She, she puts her little belief balloon out there, a little test balloon to see what will happen. And Jesus says, your, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, I know he's going to rise in the resurrection. And she's referring to the resurrection as a time, a specific moment in time, that that's when, of course, Lazarus will rise again. But that doesn't really solve my problem right now, Jesus. I'm exhausted with grief. And now I don't understand you. How could you have done this to us? How could you have 
betrayed us really in this way? How could you be so uncaring about what's ha what happened to our brother? How? I'm exhausted with grief. And so she says, of course, he's going to rise in this moment of time. But what's hanging there is, but that doesn't help us now. And Jesus's response is, I am the resurrection. I am the life. The resurrection and new life isn't going to come at a moment in time. It comes in the form of a person. And the person is Jesus. He embodies resurrection and he embodies life. So resurrection and life are standing in front of her. Go back to the the first story we read, the parable of the fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't bear fruit because it's separated from life. And its only way forward, its only way to, to bear fruit is to stop rejecting life and instead invite life into itself. And the same is true with Jesus and talking with Martha, that he's offering the gift of life that attachment to him will lead to resurrection in life. Resurrection and life are standing right in front of you. And then he asked her, do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe that you're the Messiah. You are the son of God. You have come into the world to bring life. The very thing you're saying, I believe it, Jesus. What, she's, what he's really asking her is, do you believe I am who I say I am? And she remarkably, Martha remarkably says, yes, I do, even now. In the face of your inexplicable absence and the death of my brother, I still believe. And so she goes back to tell her, her sister Martha, to, to uh, tell her sister Mary to come out and meet Jesus. The teacher's here. He's asking for you. And Mary hears this. We don't know what she responds, but she gets up quickly to meet him. She's angry. I think Mary is very angry. She's she, just as you would be if, you're, if someone could have helped save your brother but didn't. For, and has given no reason why, of course, you'd be full of grief and exhaustion and rage. Mary is, is drained of energy uh, and, and really of hope. So Mary goes to meet Jesus and the crowd follows because they see where she's going. And when she reaches where Jesus is and she sees him, she falls at his feet. She falls at his feet she doesn't walk up to him and push him or punch him in the face or all of maybe the emotions you might feel if somebody did this to you, but she fall, instead falls at her, his feet and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would be alive. It's the same thing Martha said to him. If you had been here, this wouldn't be happening right now. And Jesus sees her weeping and he knows that what he has done was a necessary risk. He needed to show the world that he has authority even over death. He needed to show them that it, not just at the cross and the resurrection did he defeat death, but he defeated death in his close friend, Lazarus, who was in the tomb for four days. So he's way past the time when uh, the, the thought could be, well, he was just, he, he swooned. <laughs> He, he didn't really die. No, he had been dead for four days and the, and the tomb would smell by this point because he was already decomposing. And Jesus waits long enough to ensure that he's for sure dead. And what he's risking is first his friend Lazarus, who has to endure this passage from life into death. But he's also risking what his close friends, Mary and Martha, will think of him for delaying coming. And he's not going to explain to them why until this moment when he says, you know, your brother's going to rise again. But he sees the toll this has taken on his friend Mary. She's just sobbing at his feet. And he sees them sobbing as well. And he's, he knows that this had to be done. He had to show his, his authority over death so that all of the world would know this. And so he chooses his best friends to risk this with. And he sees how broken it has made them. And he asks where they've laid him, and he also weeps. Now, the cost of this risk has, uh, you know, he fully feels the cost of it. And so the question is, how does Jesus enter in to their exhaustion? Well, he enters in and weeps with them. 
He doesn't out, stand outside of their exhaustion. He enters into it. He weeps with them. He occupies the same space with them. Like the friends who came to grieve with them, now he's come to grieve with them, even though he knows what he's about to do. And just as the story before, when Jesus brings the presence of life into the presence of Lazarus, who is for sure four days dead, the life cannot be denied. The life entering into Lazarus uh, uh, fills up his body with the same life that created life in the first place and recreates Lazarus's life, brings him back to life. He is a man who's now known death fully and now has known the kind of life that Jesus offers to all of us, a life that brings us back to life, a life that invades these places of utter exhaustion and hopelessness and fills up our tank again with, with living water. This is the invitation of Jesus. This is the same invitation we get when we stop to consider our favorite things and what makes them favorite to us. It's these subtle and sometimes not so subtle invitations all around us to uh, walk the path back to this place of safety which is the heart of Jesus. When we walk our path back to the intimate places in Jesus, the place of his heart, we find rest for our soul. So during the holidays, when you're extra exhausted and, you, and you're exposed to so many things that are favorite things during this time, slow down. Ask yourself why you're drawn to the things you're drawn to. Ask Jesus to show you and when he shows you and invites you on this little path back to his heart, walk there, repent, <laughs> stop walking away and walk toward. Because when you stop walking away and walk toward, what, when Jesus is given the invitation, it's always an invitation back to his heart. All right, gang, thanks for listening. You can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season five, episode 42 for links to the things that we've talked about today. Uh, again, that's painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, season five, episode 42. Just head on over there if you want more information about anything we've talked about today. And just remember, uh, this, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. And you can subscribe to make sure you don't miss any episodes on Google Play or iTunes. We'll see you again next time.